welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. My name is Dr. James Rudd. I'm the Digital Media Editor at Heart, and I'm delighted to be joined today on the podcast by Professor Nick Morell from Cambridge. So I'm delighted to be joined today on the Heart Podcast by Professor Nick Morell. Nick, could you introduce yourself for the Heart audience? Yeah, certainly. I'm a professor of cardiopulmonary medicine at the University of Cambridge, and I'm a British Heart Foundation professor. I run a clinical research group, and I'm the research director of the National Pulmonary Hypertension Service at Papworth Hospital. And Nick, there was a paper, an education in heart paper, written recently by Dr. Joe Pepke-Zaba, who's one of your colleagues, who works at Papworth Hospital in pulmonary hypertension. So I thought it was a good opportunity to get you on the podcast to discuss really the latest thinking in pulmonary hypertension. Perhaps we can just start off by the current way of classifying pulmonary hypertension. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Hmm. So pulmonary hypertension, as, as people will be aware, is really an umbrella term that refers to the fact you've got a mean pulmonary artery pressure over 25 millimetres of mercury. But of course, there are a whole range of different causes for that. And it's usually broken down into uh, five main groups. Um, the first being referred to as pulmonary arterial hypertension, sort of classical pre-capillary pulmonary arterial hypertension. And group two, where it's essentially pulmonary venous hypertension, for example, secondary to left heart disease. Um, group three, where there's an underlying respiratory, for example, chronic hypoxic cause of the um, pulmonary hypertension. Uh, group four is a very important group because it refers to uh, chronic thromboembolic forms of pulmonary hypertension as a late sequelae of unresolved pulmonary embolism. And group five, which every classification had, which is sort of miscellaneous, nothing really fits, things like sarcoidosis and schistosomiasis mm. would be group five. Mm. Mm. And one of the, the important reasons for break them, to break them into those groups is that most of the so-called targeted therapies for pulmonary arterial hypertension are licensed for treatment of people in group 1 PAH, as it's called, whereas the, the targeted therapies are not licensed for people with group 2 or 3 PH, where the advice is still very much that treatment should be directed towards the underlying cause, whether it be heart disease or lung disease. Um, group 4 is interesting because it's chronic thromboembolic disease where the, the treatment is usually surgical, mm. but actually some of the drugs are now licensed for treatment in non-operable forms of chronic thromboembolic uh, pulmonary hypertension. Okay, so just seeing as you brought it up, Nick, shall we jump to, to Group 4? One of the things that struck me from reading this review was that uh, only around a quarter of patients with Group 4 pulmonary hypertension, so that's secondary to chronic thromboembolic disease, actually had a history of a previous thrombus. Uh, and that really struck me as a very low figure. Uh, as a cardiologist, I, I assume that most people would have been on warfarin previously for pulmonary emboli, but uh, it's, it's obviously not the case. That's right. There's, there's, the assumption is, is that CTEF, which I'll call it instead of chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, um, uh, is due to unresolved pulmonary emboli. So you'd expect there to be a very strong history of uh, PE or deep vein thrombosis in the past. But you're, you're right, in about 25 to 30% of cases, there doesn't seem to be um, an obvious clinical history of that. Uh, I, I think the as, a, as a field, we still assume that the etiology is due to embolization of the pulmonary circulation from the deep veins of the legs, for example. 
um, but it must have been a cult. Mm. There has been a the theory of sort of in situ thrombosis causing this disease, but really to date the, the evidence would still suggest that this is embolic uh, mm. embolic events, perhaps occurring chronically over a period of time, you mm. know, showers of emboli, um, which are not not detected clinically. And you mentioned surgery for that condition. What what's the the surgery that you're talking about there? Yeah, so this is this is the most important reason really to um, make a diagnosis of CTEF, because actually it's the only curable form of pulmonary hypertension, unless you include transplantation as as a cure, because individuals who have a significant um, unresolved clot burden in their more proximal pulmonary arteries or these lobar and segmental arteries can undergo uh, pulmonary endarterectomy, which requires the patients going on complete cardiac bypass to open the pulmonary artery and literally ream out all the uh, old occluding um, organised thrombus um, from the pulmonary arteries. In the UK, Papworth Hospital in Cambridge is the only centre in the UK that currently um, uh, undertakes this procedure. We undertake about 160, 170 operations a year. It's it's a huge operation, but the mortality is now down to less than 3%. Um, and without that operation, people do extremely badly. Um, and the operation, despite the seriousness of it, will transform the lives of these patients and get many people back to completely normal function. Mm. So it's a very important diagnosis to make and to establish and to refer appropriately. And not everybody's suitable, is that right, for the operation? There's a multidisciplinary approach. Yeah. And it seems that perhaps half the people considered are either too far down, down the trail or have other comorbidities. That's right. In fact, in our practice, something like 60% of patients will be suitable for surgery, either because they don't have too many comorbidities and because of the anatomical distribution of their um, organized uh, thrombi. But then even in individuals who don't, uh, who are not suitable for surgery, we now have a licensed therapy for those individuals, which is one of the new treatments, which is a... um, direct stimulator of soluble guanylate cyclase called Rheasiguet. Right. Um, and that's now one of the latest uh, new additions to the drug treatment of pulmonary hypertension. And it's now also licensed in inoperable CTEF. Okay. And turning towards the group one uh, patients, would you be able to briefly in a minute or so review the, the pathophysiology, the what we see going wrong in the pulmonary circulation that leads to this? This is predominantly a disease of younger people, isn't it? Yeah, so in group 1 PAH, um, again, it can be broken down into several different underlying causes. The the kind of um, purest form, if you like, is is idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension, where there is no obvious association with any other disease. And indeed, in some of those individuals, there may be a family history of disease. But then also in group one, we have um, other forms of PAH, for example, those associated with connective tissue disease or congenital heart disease, liver disease, HIV infection, and various drugs and toxins. So that they're lumped together mainly because um, histologically they look very similar, physiologically they look similar, right heart catheterization, and they can all be potentially treated with the currently available therapies. Although having said that, the response to therapy within some of those sub 
groups of group mm. one PAH, it does vary. So, for example, patients with connective tissue disease-associated PAH, particularly scleroderma, tend to do worse than idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension. So they look and feel the same, um, but uh, there are differences in their response to therapies. Okay. And in terms of the the pathology, the underlying pathology, you said that a lot of them have a similar appearance in a microscope. We have problems with the prostacycline pathway, the endothelin pathway, and the nitric oxide pathway. And I'm assuming that the treatments are targeted to correcting those issues. That's right. And, and most of the sort of knowledge we have about these pathways, which are sort of centrally um, abnormal in, in this disease, tend to come from observations in patients with the rarest form of the disease, which is idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension, and then by extension to the other groups. So um, we've known since the uh, 1990s that uh, patients with idiopathic PAH tend to have elevated levels of um, endothelin, both within their lung and circulating. They have reduced production of prostacycline and nitric oxide from their endothelium. So the sort of simple um, approach has been, well, let's you know inhibit endothelin mm. and let's supplement nitric oxide and prostacycline signaling. Yeah. And um, th- that, so the endothelin receptor antagonists initially transformed the availability of treatments for PAH. They came online in the UK back in 2000. And they are drugs like Bosentan. These are drugs like Bosentan, now Masitentan, yeah. Ambrosentan, um, which target both uh, ETA and ETB receptors, or just the ETA receptor in, in the case of Ambrosentan. Um, and these tend to be added on top of calcium channel antagonists, which right. are the first line. So, yeah, so, you know, if you see, if you have a patient with severe pulmonary arterial hypertension, uh, um, there are certain things you can do, such as you know, correcting fluid balance and frusamide, um oxygen where, where needed, you know, sort of usual things that one can do. But then if you're going for targeted therapies, the, the, one of the first decisions you have to make is whether the patient is responsive to uh, a fairly cheap and uh, vasodilator, such as a calcium channel blocker. Um, and you have to be really careful about this because... Um, uh, the vast majority of patients with severe PAH, if you give them a high-dose calcium channel blocker, you'll reduce the systemic blood pressure and they won't be able to increase their cardiac output because of the restriction in the pulmonary vascular bed. And so they can become syncopal yeah. and faint with, with calcium channel blockers. So we only give calcium channel blockers to people who in the cath lab can be demonstrated as having a very significant response to an inhaled vasodilator like nitric oxide. I see. Um, with a very significant reduction in pulmonary artery pressure and increase in cardiac output. If they are fortunate enough to show that response, which is really less than 5% of people with idiopathic PAH, and far less common in the other forms of PAH, yeah. those individuals have a fantastic prognosis on high-dose calcium channel blockers. So that sort of underlines the importance of undertaking a proper so-called vasodilator study in the cath lab in these individuals mm. to mm. see whether they are suitable for long-term calcium channel blocker therapy. Mm. And if you don't undertake that study, it's it's dangerous to yeah. put people on calcium channel blockers. So so that that takes care of a small but a very important number of number of people. Um, and uh, beyond that, if they don't respond acutely to calcium channel block to to nitric oxide they are candidates to be treated with one of the other 
existing therapies, which are either endothelin receptor antagonists or um, agents which uh, promote nitric oxide signaling, such as sildenafil mm. um, or, its, or, or, or similar drugs, which inhibit phosphodiesterase type 5 and um, enhance uh, cyclic GMP levels in smooth muscle cells. And rear-sigwat is the new kid on the block, if you like, which is stimulates directly soluble guanylate cyclase um, okay. and, uh, again, increases cyclic GMP levels. Usually, these days, um, in, in clinical practice, it's, it's, patients are often started on sildenafil initially, partly because it's um, off-patent and therefore cheaper than many of the other expensive drugs. Um, but then many of our patients rapidly go on to, if they don't show a, a definite improvement, will go on to combination therapy with an endothelium receptor antagonist. Mm. And if they're very severe at presentation or they continue to deteriorate, there'll be candidates for prostacycline therapy or its analogues, um, some of which can be given by injection. And indeed, you know, prostacycline itself was given by continuous intravenous infusion. Yeah. Um, there are some... Uh, drugs around these days, which are small molecules which uh, stimulate the prostacycline receptors, drugs like Selexipag, which is now uh, coming on onto the market. It's been quite hard to increase these oral prostanoids um, to give the to give the levels required to to get a, a hemodynamic response without causing gastrointestinal side effects. But still, they are, they are really showing beginning to show promise now. And um, finally, just to wrap up, Nick, what are the where do you see the next five or ten years in, let's focus on group one disease, um, are there new classes of drugs uh, out there in, in clinical trials, has big data or genome analysis helped to refine these, these patient groupings, will we see different groupings, more subgroupings perhaps in the future which will help us direct therapies to the right people? What gets you excited about pulmonary hypertension group one these days? Yeah, well, for me, it is the genetics. A lot of what we do is, is around the genetics of, of PAH, both in terms of um, finding sort of new causal rare genetic variants um, uh, and also trying to identify sort of common uh, genetic variation which um, uh, alters susceptibility to disease, but also the clinical course of disease and potentially response to therapies. So, for example, the commonest genetic cause of pulmonary hypertension is mutations in something called the bone morphogenetic protein type 2 receptor, or BMPR2. And um, uh, if we uh, screen for mutations in that gene and find individuals with mutations in that gene, they tend to have a worse outcome. They tend to be younger, have more severe disease, um, uh, and unfortunately their survival is poorer. So... Um, uh, identifying them is important um, for that reason, but also, of course, because they can potentially hand it on to their uh, children. In terms of therapies, you know, we, we now have quite a lot of drugs in the armamentarium for PAH that, that attack these three different pathways, but we shouldn't forget that they were really kind of all developed as vasodilators and were really borrowed from the systemic circulation to treat patients with PAH and have had an impact but I, the, I think the field generally feels that these drugs don't really attack the underlying sort of cellular and molecular basis of the disease. So there's a lot of interest now in developing non-vasodilator therapies, which really attack the underlying cellular pathology, particularly taking clues from the genetics, where um, you know, this, this is clearly an important cause of the disease, 
and developing therapies which stimulate the, uh, the, the BMPR2 pathway, for example, mm. is an important area for over the next five to ten years. Fantastic. Well, that's a brilliant overview. Thank you, Professor Morell, for your time. Thank you.